So good to see you this morning. So, where are my glasses? This morning, we're going to get into the letter of 1 John itself. Now, let's remember the purpose. It's extremely important to remember the author's purpose, the context, the audience. Because if we get those clear, it will help us to have a much better understanding of what the author is talking about and how to apply that understanding. And when we say, for instance, John said this or he wrote that, I want to make explicit that every author of every book in the Bible is not the author in himself. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us through this man whom the Holy Spirit has given a message. Amen? So if I happen to say John says this, what does that really mean? The Holy Spirit says this to us through the Apostle John, Paul, Peter, Ezekiel, Moses, or whoever it is. Okay? We must understand this. Because otherwise, we can interpret it as, well, that's just, that was Paul's understanding. There's a theology out there that, you know, Paul's understanding was this and is different. No, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through these men. Amen. So everything in this letter, like everything in every other book of the New Testament and the Old Testament, is from whom? It's from God, for God, and about God. Amen. That's what the Bible is. Okay, now, the umbrella is this, that John is writing in defense of the gospel. He's writing to protect the church from heretical, unbiblical teachings. And he's not only writing to protect, but in protecting the church by giving correction to the church, he is promoting the fellowship that God has established in the body. And you remember this. The church, biblically speaking, each believer, we are anchored in Christ who is our rock. And so the emphasis and the burden of 1 John is not about our relationship or our standing in or our union in Christ. That is already taken place by the Holy Spirit, correct? We are in Christ and ain't nothing or nobody ever going to take us out of Christ. Amen. So that's not the issue, whether or not our salvation is at stake here. The issue in this letter is about the consequence of our relationship. Why did God bring us into relationship? Why? Because he wanted to have us to experience the Trinitarian fellowship. He wanted to share himself with us and us with himself. So there would be that mutual, divine, human, relational fellowship. Do we have all that? That's the context. So that means that anything and everything about this, this letter has to do with our fellowship with God. As expressed and manifested and promoted 
through our fellowship with one another. Now, that's where we often lose it. We're in fellowship with God, fellowship with God, fellowship with God, and we're in fellowship with one another. I don't say and. I don't like the use of that particular coordinate conjunction. I say we are in fellowship with God through our fellowship with one another. Can we see the difference here? We're not talking about two things, fellowship with God, fellowship with man. We're talking about one issue, fellowship with God by the Holy Spirit through the atoning death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? Express, manifested, promoted, encouraged, matured, etc. experience through our mutual fellowship as the body of Christ. Which means this, that our fellowshipping together is the very heart of God for us. So that any and every activity in the church is to be an expression of that fellowship and has to do with the building up and the promoting and the expansion of that fellowship. Okay? So, let's talk about chapter 1, verses 1 and 4. And I think I'll try to at least get through the first word. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John begins his defense of the gospel, defense of Christianity, by testifying that Jesus is a divine man. He's testifying to Jesus' real divinity, and simultaneously and equally, he's testifying to Jesus' real humanity. Did we get that? Simultaneously and equally, he's testifying to Jesus' divinity as well as his humanity. Now, where's Stephen Fortenberry in here? Raise your hand, Stephen, so I can see you. Now, so on that, what are the two principal truths about Jesus that make him who he is? The The Son of God and the Son of Man. You remember when we talked about that a while back? So Christianity is under attack. And I want us to see this. I want us to see this. Christianity is under attack. How many of us know today our faith is under attack? How many of us know today that our faith has always been under attack? How many of us know today that once God created man, that purpose of God was under attack? So don't think today, it's just manifestingly differently and we're beginning to experience more personally, Correct. This isn't anything new. There's nothing new. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, I can just hear Satan say, oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. The first thing out of his mouth, David. Oh, yeah. Let's see how that works. So how do you defend the faith? The first four verses of 1 John give us a great template to show us how to defend the faith. You see, he's defending against Gnosticism. Remember, Jesus isn't a real man. It's a phantom or whatever. There is no sin. You remember those issues? But let us make sure that when we look at this, the defense that John begins with is not just a defense of Gnosticism, of a particular heresy but is the Holy Spirit's message to us of how to be sure to defend the gospel 
in any and under every circumstance if it is a tactic, correct? Make sure that we widen the scope of this. Specifically, Gnosticism is the issue. But the real issue is defense of the gospel. So let's read the first four verses. And as we read, remember, the attack in this particular time period is against this truth that that man, Jesus, whom you were saying is the son of God, who's divine, that can't be because God would never inhabit a fallen body. Correct? Remember that? He's not going to. We don't believe in sin. How many of you have folks and friends who literally, they just don't believe in sin? Do you ever hear people say, I don't believe that. You're saying, I don't believe that. I mean, I believe people make mistakes and have problems. But really, we're sinners? We're sinners? No, no, we're not sinners. All men are really innately good. We just have to learn to behave and to get our potential and so on. There is no sin. I don't have time to explain this, but when I say there's no sin, I mean something very specific. When we say there is no sin, what the Bible is talking about is there is no offense to God. Correct? That's sin. Most people don't believe in it. How do you know that? Because if they believe, the Holy Spirit has to convict them of sin. And in convicting them of, them of sin, that's the preparatory work of saving them. Unbelievers don't believe in sin biblically. Amen. Do we get that? If they did, Steve, they'd have to be convicted of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, so let's read this in connection with it, specifically Gnosticism, but in general. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. So how does John begin? John begins where all of us should begin to defend the faith. To begin with testifying to the truth of Jesus' divinity and humanity. That's the foundation of our faith. To begin anywhere else and to get into an argument about any other aspect of the Christian faith is a losing proposition, correct? If we're defending the faith, it has to be upon the basis and the foundation. We, if the foundation is faulty and the house is cracking up, we don't try to fix the roof. We must first go to the foundation so that once that is settled, we can go back and repair the roof. Correct? Everybody knows this. So in first John, John, verse 1, John begins by reminding the church about two central truths about Jesus' real identity, which was from, from the formation of, the Christian, of Christianity. By the way, John's already taught this. Remember, he's not telling them something that, oh, wow, 
I didn't hear that. He is telling them and reminding them of things that he has taught the church. So he's not going into great detail about this. He's done that as a teacher, as an elder in this church for several years. He's just reminding them of what they already know. So what does he say in verse 1? Jesus was, was from the beginning, and he is the word of life. Do you see that in verse 1? He says two things about Jesus in verse 1. He was from the beginning, and he's the word of life. Do you see that? He immediately begins at the beginning, at the foundation. Jesus is, was from the beginning. Now, where have we heard that from the beginning? What is another verse that sounds similar to that? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Remember the gospel of Mark, chapter 1-1. What? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Remember that? Where else have we heard the word beginning? John 1-1. In the beginning was the word, word of life. You see, beginning and word of life. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. And all things that were made were made by him. So you see, John is saying differently but the same content to the church of what he has already said in the gospel. This is the foundation of our faith. This is it. So when you hear somebody like Oprah Winfrey, who says emphatically, I am a Christian. Well, when people tell you they're Christian, don't you just say, oh, oh, thank God. you Ask something if you don't know the person. Ask a few questions. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, could you explain what a Christian is? If they do not begin with the incarnation that Jesus is, Stephen, Stephen, Jesus is what? Son of God as the son of man. They're not Christian. May I be narrow? Everybody on television land? A Christian is one who has believed and received this truth that Jesus is the divine son of God incarnate as the son of man. Otherwise, what? They ain't Christians no matter what they say and what they do. Do we have that? That's the foundation. That excludes every other religion. See, John is reminding the church of the double identity. Son of God, son of man. In saying Jesus was in the beginning, John is affirming what? Jesus' pre-existence. Before creation. Remember when we talked about God as love. We started with the aseity of God. What does that mean? God's self life. He is unbeginning. He has always been. He has created everything. So that everything that is. Is is because God always is. I'm not sure what that meant. <clears throat> By saying that Jesus is the word of life, John is affirming Jesus' humanity as the Son of God. Now, do we see that in this verse? He's affirming 
what was from the beginning. Now, interesting, he says what rather than he. He's using that. He's using the emphasis of Jesus is the word as he does in as he does in the gospel. What? Now, there's a debate. Is it the gospel of Jesus? Well, Jesus is the gospel. Therefore, yes, it is. It is the gospel. Yes, it is Jesus. Okay. By saying that Jesus is the in the beginning, he's proclaiming his preexistence as the eternal Son of God. By saying he's the Word of Life, he is emphasizing the incarnation. You remember John one fourteen? Who can quote John one fourteen? Come, come on, and the and the Word what? And that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of. Grace and truth. So that is an absolute needed verse. You must know John 1 14. You must know it. It is a requirement. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, the same we as John says in this book, we, John himself and the apostles, usans. And we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of what? Grace and truth. This is the one whom we proclaim to you. We're not proclaiming activities. We're not proclaiming morality. We're proclaiming a man. A man. Do we get it? We're not proclaiming programs. We're not proclaiming denominations. We're proclaiming what? A risen man. Correct? Somebody can yell out amen on that. Somebody should get excited about that. Then in verses 2 to 3, John's going to elaborate. Okay, he's in the beginning and he's with Jesus is in the beginning and with he's the word of life. Okay, let's get some meat on that bone. John says in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus is not alone. He's not alone. He's what? With the Father. And in verse 3, he's with the Father as the Father's son. Do you see that? So Jesus is not alone. Now here we get into the most spectacular and amazing truth of God's aseity. You see how I said it? I didn't separate aseity. This means this, that what we're going to say has always been true of God. What is it? God is the only unique being in all creation. He is a plurality of three equal divine persons in the one being of God, existing in a relational fellowship of love through distinct roles. Now, that may not be in your notes. Sometimes I say things that are not in the notes. It's called the Trinity. That is the absolute unique issue about God. This God who is assay, assayity, always has been, is a God who is in himself a plurality of divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what John is saying here, when I say what John is saying, Jonathan, whom do I really mean? What the Holy Spirit is saying through John. What the Holy Spirit is saying through John is this. That man, that man that you saw, that you know, that you spoke with, 
that was arrested and beaten, that was nailed to a cross, who died and who rose. That man is God the Son, dwelling eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in perfect relational fellowshipping unity in love. Amen. That's who that is. That's who that is. That's who he is. In these verses, John reminds the church about the absolute uniqueness of God. So when people say, well, the God of Christianity and Judaism and Mormon, Mormonism, maybe so, uh, Jehovah's Witness, but uh, uh, Islam is the same God. Is that true? Well, of course it isn't. The God of Judaism is potentially and in the essence of who he is in the teaching. But the way it's, he's taught today and believe he is not. Do we see the distinction here? The God of Christianity is the only divine being in all creation. Correct? And we're not afraid to say that. So who is the God of all these other religions? I remember when we were in Irkutsk, Russia, 1995. You ever been put in a situation where the Holy Spirit uses you and you just weren't aware of what was going on and how it was, but, and you thought later, what in the world was happening then? And had you had to um, quote your own mind about you, you would have shut your mouth, right, or left, correct, Wendy? I, right? And so we're out, and it's basically Muslim way out there near China way out in Mongolia area, Irkutsk. And so fellow walks up to me, it's nighttime. I have my Jenya, who was the um, pedagogic, pedagogic uh, translator. And he comes up to me, the fellow, and he says, I bet you don't know the name of my God. This, this young guy is uh, Muslim. And I tell him, Jenna, tell him, I do know the name of your God. And Jenya says, okay. He tells him that. He said, well, what's the name of my God? I said, don't, tra- don't say anything, Junior. I looked at him and says, Satana. Amen. What else am I going to say, Jody? Amen. What else am I going to say? Now, I realized later. <laughs> but at the moment. Who is the God of this world? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan. 1 John 5.19. The entire world lies under the authority of the enemy of devil. I know his name. I know the name of the Mormon God. I know the name of the Jehovah's Witness. Oh, well, yes, I do. What's his name? Satana. Satan. You think, oh, man, that's narrow. Jesus says narrow is the way. Correct? I'm a narrow-minded man. And I hope you are a narrow-minded people. Because we have the mind of God. And nobody else has it. In these verses, John is reminding us that God exists as three. We've already said about relational fellowship within God. This truth is the heart of John's gospel. Tell us. 
verses 1 to 3 tell us that God has sent his incarnate son into the world as our Emmanuel to atone for our sin in order to make us partakers of the divine nature. We see that in 2 Peter 1, 4, the divine nature of God's fellowship in Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1, 9, do you know what that says? Again, a verse you need to know, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. I don't know if it's in your notes. For God is faithful who has called us. Now, look. Has God called us? Yes. We would say, what has God called us into? Well, he's called us to evangelize. He's called us to pray. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He doesn't say that. For God is faithful. Do you, do you know what? Who has called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And being called into that fellowship, therefore, we pray, we evangelize, we teach. Do we see it? We disciple. It's within the context of fellowship that this occurs. Now, I know many churches would say, the church needs to fellowship, we need to do this, we need to do that. I understand that, but I like to say it differently because I think it's different. We are called into fellowship with God through our fellowship with one another, correct? And how is that fellowship promoted and encouraged? Pray, read the word, testify, love one another, give, minister. Do we see it? All of these are fellowship activities. So we don't want to get it backward and upside down. I never want to make these things equal with fellowship. They are the root, uh, uh, sorry, the fruit of fellowship. I know you can say root and fruit equal, but I, I think you understand what I'm talking about. There is a flow here. So he's testified to Jesus' real divinity. Do we see that in the first few verses? Now let's go back. Let's talk about Jesus' real humanity. In these four verses, remember, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, he is testifying his defense is about two, the two primary and only truthful statements about the person and work of Christ, that he is divine and he is human. So what does it say about Jesus' real humanity? <clears throat> He gives a personal testimony. He says this. Now, how many of us have seen and read or whatever books or exposés or people saying, you know, Jesus isn't God? How many of us say, heard people say this? You know, well, the question is this. What is the basis, John, for you saying that? Well, I just don't believe it. I mean, I, I don't see any of it. I mean, <laughs> let's wake up, Christians. Let's not be bowled over by these stupidities. And I say that in a spiritual way. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see. What? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So I'm using stupidity within that kind of a context. Don't fall for this stuff. Ask questions. So John is saying, you know, these people are saying Jesus wasn't real. He wasn't real. And he says, you know something? Like it comes up to them. How many of you know this man here? 
We call him Daniel, right? So we come, we come up. Daniel's been saying, no, I don't believe this, Jesus. Whatever. Were you there? Well, no, I wasn't there. I mean, you know, John says, we were there. Amen. I'm an eyewitness. Now, we have an attorney with us. Now, what is better, attorney, to an accident, an eyewitness or someone heard about the accident? Which one's legally the more powerful one? What? Eyewitness. Eyewitness. John says, we were there. Were you? When all these folks begin to say this and that and the other, were you there? Who are you? There's an eyewitness account. Oh, well, you can't believe that. But then you can't believe any other account, eyewitnesses. You see, it undermines a whole lot more than just the Bible. You see, in effect, John is saying, I was there with Jesus, with the other apostles, and we know personally that Jesus was a real human, not a phantom, contrary to those false teachers who were not there. And here's how we know. How do we know? Verses 1, 2, and 3. How do we know? I'm just taking excerpts from verses. How do you know, John? What's the personal testimony? Always be ready to give a defense of the gospel. Somebody said that to somebody under certain circumstances. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, not a phantom, and the life that was manifested and we have seen what was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard. So what is John doing? John's doing what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He's giving personal testimony. The most powerful evidence that the Holy Spirit uses for the validity of our faith is sitting in this room. We are the message Sorry, let me say it this way. We are the vessels <clears throat> of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, I think it is. For we have this treasure, this Christ, in earthen vessels, that the power, excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're the vessels. And as vessels, everything about my life. May I repeat that word? Jackie, what word did I just say? Everything. Everything about my life is a proclamation and a manifestation of Christ himself. Everything. Every thought, every word, every deed, every motive for the Christian is about God. Everything. The way you dress is about God. The way you relate to other people is about God. The way we think is about God. It's not just about God when we pick up a Bible and start talking about God. So how do they know, Anton? We are living what? Testimonies. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. The Holy Spirit is given and he will what? Testify of me. Correct? Is there anything in my life or your life as a believer that does, that does not testify about Jesus? Anything at all? That's who we are. We're the living image of God on earth, of the Lord Jesus. So here's what Paul says. Hey, love. 
he's writing to the Corinthian church in about the year 50, 55. So he's writing to a bunch of people who know what's going on. They were there. And he tells them in this, and I think it may be in your notes, I'm not sure, maybe the references. And he runs down the testimony. Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to Cephas and he appeared to the other apostles, you know, and then he appeared to about 500 folks, whatever. And then all, and then all of us, and then he says, and last of all, he appeared to me. Now, had he written that letter to the church, to people who knew who were there? Okay, well, that's not true. Paul's saying a lie. There is not one scrap of evidence from the very same period of time called primary source of information, which in any way contradicts the validity and the truth of the resurrection. Everything that contradicts it is, of course, is what is called secondary. Do we see that? Why didn't they find the body? Philip, you know what I mean by that? I mean, Joseph, why didn't they find the body? He rose. If they had found the body, and if Jesus... Who came out of it. Thank you, guys. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to marry Mary Magdalene. So we're going to have kids. Okay, fine. <laughs> then the first time, the first time they put the, and you know better. You know that Jesus is not, a lot, you know, didn't rise. First time they put a sword to your wife's throat. What are you going to say? I'll tell you the truth as a hoax. Are you or not? Yes or no? You can speak in class. It's okay. Yes. The first time they're about to gouge the eyes of your children out, what are you going to say? It's a fake. He didn't get up. Correct? These people were torn asunder, split, and everything else. Why didn't someone crack and say, it's a lie? Why? Because it's true. There is no body. He's ruling, reigning, and returning. He's in heaven. With a new body. That's the proof of our faith. <laughs> Stephen is starting to preach back there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me try to finish this quickly. John 3, John, then he says in verse 3, John tells us the purpose. This is why I'm defending, this is why I'm protecting our fellowship. Look, he is his purpose of the defense was the protection of their fellowship with God and with one another. Okay. Verse three, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. He said, this is an introduction. I'm telling you all this stuff. Why? To protect our fellowship with God through our fellowship with one another so that we are not moved and shaken and falling away and, and not sure and worried and, and, and all of that kind of thing. John says, I don't want this to happen because it affects our fellowship with one another. And if it affects our fellowship with one another, it affects our fellowship with God. And when our fellowship with God is affected, people see the fellowship of the Trinity differently than he really is. It's all about who? Come on. It's all about God. It's all from and it's all for God. 
Our ability to experience fellowship with God through our mutual fellowship is the highest place. The greatest gift, <clears throat> the goal of God in the incarnation of his son as the son of man. This is the goal of God. The grand result of our fellowship is expressed in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Whose joy? Our joy. But what is meant in our joy? Our joy, biblically speaking, is God's own joy that he has within himself, within the community of God as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit experience eternal joy of fellowship. Jesus has given us that joy. My joy I give to you that your joy may be what? Full. That's the joy. It is the joy of fellowship. It is the experiencing the first fruit of God's love in our hearts. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That's the joy. As we experience the joy of God's own fellowship, the joy of God's fellowship having been given to us, he's placed his own joy, the joy that the three persons experience among themselves has been placed in us by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Romans 5, 5. That's the joy we have. And as we experience God's own joy and express that fellowship among ourselves, the glory of God in Christ is manifested. Do we see the connection here? We talk about we're being the, you know, the, the glory of God and we want to be the vessels of his glory. This is how. And Satan and sin and the world and everything else comes against us to infect, impact, and in some way try. You notice how you use the word try. Try to destroy the joy. But can the joy of God in me ever be destroyed? Can I ever lose my joy? No. People say, I've lost my joy. You have not lost it. To lose your joy is to have lost Christ himself because he is our joy. You may, be, have, you may have lost or have such a diminished experience of that joy because of circumstances. I understand that. But you have not lost the joy. Can we say amen? Do we see how that is? This is God's purpose of the gospel. That God was in Christ reconciling himself into the world. So that what? The glory of the divine fellowship as revealed in our mutual fellowship with one another. That's what God is all about in our lives. Next week, we'll go into the next section. Thank you.